Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. I'm pleased to be joined on the show today by Mike Holly, the author of The Ripper Haunts and researcher into the life of Dr. Francis Tumblety, along with Brian Young, a fellow Buffalonian whose decades-long interest in the Whitechapel murders have led them to partner up on a recent project. This has led to some brand new discoveries about Francis Tumblety that they will be discussing for the first time here with us today. Welcome to the show. Good to talk to you, Jonathan. So if, uh, Michael, if you can set us up by explaining the project that ultimately led to you obtaining what I've been told amounts to hundreds of pages of new primary source material on Dr. Tumblety. Periodically, I check. uh, It was my website email. And now I have a little flag that goes on my computer when uh, someone is emailing me. So I, I quick check that. And then uh, it says, uh, just sent you uh, the same message on Facebook. My name is Michael Sanop, a graduate student at Webster University in St. Louis. As part of my degree, I'm currently working on a documentary about Francis Tumblety. Please call me at this number. So I, I read that and I, go, and I was uh, research, I was continuing to research because there's a bunch of new discoveries since... Uh, the Rivers Haunt was done, and uh, who was helping me out with it was Brian Young, and uh, so we had discovered a lot of stuff. And so, but I was quite interested in to see what he had to do. So uh, I called him up because I I personally like enjoy talking to people about Francis Dumbledore. So, so then when we started talking, and I could see that uh, some of the ideas on uh, how to discover this, where to go, all that stuff. Once we started. Uh, discovering some things, I thought what was quite important was to uh, bring along a Kosminskiite, <laughs> and uh, as in uh, someone that would be a little more skeptical at what I was seeing, Michael and I were seeing, because it was pretty kind of revealing, so that I, I recommended to Michael that uh, we bring along Brian so that he could look at it from a different perspective. And also that uh, Brian uh, had, knows more about the details of the uh, uh, of the whole Whitechapel invest, uh, murders uh, case. So uh, that's what happened. And then Michael found out that Brian has this radio voice be perfect for a documentary. So that's kind of how all this got together. And who is it that did the actual research? Was it just a combination of the three of you, or it? Well, what happened was is uh, when Michael started. Uh, his discoveries and uh, started taking pictures and then sending them off to me that, uh, I mean, it was, we had, it's over 600 pages worth of documents. And he sent every single one to me. To me. And my wife, uh, I, I could tell how much research I could go. What I would do is when she starts saying uh, I want a divorce, I knew I was going a little too far with it. So I'd have to back off a bit. But uh, I've gone through those probably six or seven times, and then uh, every time I go through, I still find more stuff, and then uh, and it's it's quite an intriguing thing. But uh, so the 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 thing though was that uh, I think what helped Michael out with me was some of the material that comes in. Uh, there is a uh, an important reason for that particular piece of information, maybe in 1873 in Tumbley's life. Or maybe in 1889, maybe 1893. So were these documents located, just the 600-plus pages of depositions and other papers, is that they're located in 
state and local and government archives located strictly in St. Louis. But I just want to tell my listeners that I haven't seen any of these documents. Um, but I, I know that Michael Hawley and Brian Young both have. So I seriously doubt they're pulling the wool over our eyes um, because if it's new information um, that has been revealed about Francis Tumbledee that are in actual physical documents that Michael Hawley has seen and he and I and he contacted me then I trust that you know these are all above board and legit I just want to make that little disclaimer but that I haven't personally seen any of make maybe Mike can um, can uh, email me a PDF or something like that so the little the little child letter written in 1913 to George R. Sims and rediscovered by Stuart Evans in 1993 states that Tumblety's feelings towards women were remarkable and bitter in the extreme, a fact on record. And for the past 25 years, researchers haven't been all too successful in obtaining evidence that rose to the level of extremely remarkably bitter feelings. Until you, my colleague have released a few minor incidents which could fall into that definition. From what I've been told, these new documents that we're going to be discussing do bolster what Little Child claimed about Tumblety. So just go through all of this for us. Well, uh, uh, hi, Jonathan. Brian here. Uh, Before we even get into the meat of that, I just wanted to explain how I was brought into this with Mike. Uh, Me and Mike Hawley... I've been doing research, bouncing things back and forth since he was working on Ripper Hunt. And he knows that I am not a tumble tea suspect guy. Never have been. I'm a researcher and a historian. And he uses, you know, me as a skeptic sometimes. He'll pass things along to me and say, you know, give me the counter argument. When he first got the call from Michael Sandnop, he was telling me about it that, you know, he met this guy in St. Louis and Little by little, he started getting the information, and I would be getting texts at 3 in the morning saying, oh, my God, you have to read this. And I was brought in primarily to be the devil's advocate for these guys, um, you know, to keep, uh, to keep our feet in reality, saying let's not get ahead of ourselves, let's not claim things that we can't prove, let's not um, – just, you know, let's not play the case closed card, you know. Um, but th- there is some really intriguing evidence that's been found in these documents that uh, they help substantiate m- work Mike had done prior to these documents being discovered. That's what I feel is the most important finds. Let's talk about the documents that we're talking about. Okay, so the... One of the things is, you know, basically the two questions about Francis Tumblety have always been, did Scotland Yard consider him a suspect, a significant suspect? And then two, was he Jack the Ripper? So like when The Ripper's Haunts was written to showcase the new evidence to tackle the first question and only touch upon, you know, the second about him being possibly being Jack the Ripper, the St. Louis documents not only confirm question one, which really does support what Stuart Evans was saying all along, but it also forces us to take a serious look at look at question two, especially uh, with respect to the little child letter. What you were talking about when little child said that uh, not only did he say the uh, uh, what he what he first said was is amongst the suspects. So when he said amongst the suspects, 
he was not the person that put Francis Tumbley on that suspect list. His boss, through the uh, CID, the investigative department, they, he was, uh, so Little Child was saying that he was one of the suspects. And then he gave the reason for that. The biggest reason was his feeling towards women were remarkable and bitter, and bitter in the extreme. And then he said that fact on record. So what I had done before is I've shown, just like you were saying, Jonathan, that uh, some uh, uh, evidence to support that. So with these particular documents, we have uh, a number of different um, sworn testimonies of people that never met each other, even to, even afterwards. They didn't know who each other were. And the first one was the uh, uh, Richard Norris, and I could uh, kind of... Uh, quote that particular part of what he, during the sworn testimony, what he said. Richard Norris was with, uh, he was, he met Francis Tumbley in around 1880. And Norris, just like three or four other young men, was at the theater and Tumbley introduced himself at the theater. And it was the, I think, the St. Charles Theater in, in New Orleans. And uh, Tumbley had asked him to write a letter for him, introduced himself and uh, as a, basically a prominent person. And uh, so that started the relationship off. And they were basically friends for the next 20 years. And they would meet each other every Mardi Gras in New Orleans. And what happened was, is he... Uh, uh, when they were asking him what happened about uh, this situation, uh, one of the things that he talked about was that Tumbley brought him into his room and uh, he said that, I can read that right off to you. It said, uh, uh, he, Tumbley first gave him, it was in the St. Charles Hotel. He went with him, ordered a couple bottles of Burke's ale. I drank a bottle and he drank the other and he insisted upon me drinking another. I thought he wanted to get me intoxicated and I refused to do it. He then opened a large trunk, but in the meantime, some more ale. And he pulled out a velvet vest, which had, I judge, four, three or four medals on either side, which they looked like gold medals, which we know Tumbley definitely had those. But then he said, uh, he told me they were awarded to him by the English government. Then there was a sort of tray in the trunk, and there were all the sorts of large knives in there, surgical instruments. That is, I did not know they were at the time. After that, we were, uh, he was arrested, supposed to be a bad character. It was a sort of a put-up job at the time to find out what he really was. There were large knives in the trunk, and then he came over, to me and felt my pulse and felt my legs. I was smoking a cigarette at the time and he said, throw that away. And he handed me a cigar and we know uh, Tumbley loves cigars, saying it was bad to smoke cigarettes. He said, the trouble with young men are those cigarettes and those confounded streetwalkers. He said, if he had his way, they would all be disemboweled. And what year um, it was Richard Norris talking about here? So he was talking, this was about, this was between 1880 and 1882. Uh, when you look at his testimony, 
It may not very well have been the first time he met him, but it was within the first couple years that this particular case uh, went on. And then what uh, then what Norris does talk about? Norris was working at the police uh, at the, uh, the New Orleans Police Department, and a few years later, and uh, during 1888, when the chief of police was a guy named Hennessy. He became chief of police in April 1888, and what happened was is uh, Norris discussed. He used, actually orients his time frames by using chiefs of police from New Orleans, and then he said that when uh, Tumbley was in in the newspapers for possibly being Jack the Ripper, that gave him concern, and so um, and so the next time Norris met up with Tumbley would have been. February 1889, just when he finished writing his 1889 autobiography. And so he was concerned about that, and he asked Tumblee if uh, about that, and Tumblee said yes. I says, uh, here's what he says. Uh, let's see. Now, I read and knew of the Whitechapel business and did not know at the time. I got a little scared of this man, and I went over to the chief of police. I told him of this fellow, and he told me that reminds me of the big tall man that he read in the Chicago Herald and Pittsburgh Dispatch as being Jack the Ripper. And I said, he answers the description. And seeing and noticing the way he spoke and how he acted, he never frequented the street in the daytime. He used to walk the streets all hours of the night. When I spoke to him about the numerous women that had been killed around Whitechapel, he said, yes, I was there when it all happened. Well, after he told me that, I tried to shun him, and he sent notes and letters and came to the office after me. And we know that Tumbley used to do that to his young men. He gave me a good time, took me to the theater, and spent a good deal of money on me. And we know Tumbley always went to the theater. So this particular case of Norris making those comments was uh, uh, quite uh, the first time I had read that or first time that was uh, very interesting because we'd never had Tumbley connected with knives. And notice that those knives he did not carry on his person. So whenever Tumbley was arrested because he was preying upon young boys, he would not be carrying those knives at those times. So then... Uh, so because they were kept in a tray in his trunk, right? Correct, correct. Mm -hmm. And then so we do know, I do have a report of that particular trunk uh, a few years later that uh, there, I have a, uh, a report on that he had that trunk, a trunk like that, so in the newspapers. So that's the oh. first of the uh, uh, kind of a corroborating report of him that, Hating women, just as uh, uh, as in it was a, a misogynic, misogynistic hate, but also that the reason he didn't hate all women, he only hated women that were the ones that could decoy young boys away from their intended lovers, older men. So when Richard Norris says his arrest was a put-up job, to find out what he was really about. Does he mean that the arrest, Tumblesey's arrest for the Whitechapel murders was a put-up job in order 
because of the gross indecency charges to find out that he was really a homosexual? Is that what he was meaning by no, that? No, he no, he was meaning when uh, when he met him in 1880 or 1881. If you recall, uh, do you remember when Tumblr got arrested in uh, around that time that it was a put up job? Uh, let's see, I don't have it with me in front of me, but uh, he actually talks about that later where uh, uh, that at that time where Tumbledy when he was framed for theft yeah or petty theft yes okay yes that's what he was talking about okay sorry i was a little confused because at first i thought that maybe he was talking about the Whitechapel murders and so richard norse um might not have believed he was jack the ripper but it kind of contradicts itself when he goes on to discuss his statements that he made about um disemboweling night walkers and stuff so i just wanted to clear that up okay and why do we believe richard norris was um giving a deposition in 1905 well that would read there with the uh, norris testimony remember what's going on is uh in the case was uh there was a um, and this is what is in the newspapers as well, but also uh, anybody that's researched it, that the uh, Tumbledee's 1903 will only bequeathed th- pretty much a third of it to uh, certain people, including family members, but he was very selective. He gave it to, let's say, for example, uh, Mary Fitzsimmons, $10,000, and his two brothers, her two brothers, got zip. So there was uh, many family members upset. So Nor- Norris was asked to testify on the, um, to give a deposition on the behalf of someone who got shafted in Tumblety's probate case. Is that what you're saying, Mike? What basically what happened is uh, the family members that did not get their fair, sh- pair, fair share of the pie was uh, they wanted to cons- they wanted to show prove that that Tumblety was not of sound mind and bodies. Therefore, the will is null and void. So then the, all the family, get, family gets equal amounts. What they did was is they went to different cities and they, they wanted testimony to show that Tumblety in his older days was kind of whacked in the head. And so gotcha. what Norris does, and so what happens is Norris knew him in the older days. So, but what happened was is because Norris's particular deposition was not in front of the judge, uh, it, uh, his was just given. He just kept on talking. And so what he did was he started right from the beginning of when he knew him to the very end. So what the but what the court could give a crap about the Jack the Ripper stuff, what the court wanted to know about was at his tail end was Tumblebee of sound mind and body. And so so Norris eventually gets into that. So uh, so what they did was is they were contacting people that knew Norris uh, or knew Tumblebee from the 1890s into 1902 to show that he was losing it. And that's when you look at all these depositions, it's focused on was he of sound mind and body. So during Norris's deposition, you had said that he mentioned what he had, what Tumblety had said to him around 1880, 1882. He mentions in his deposition that he told uh, chief of police in New Orleans, David Hennessy, this at, at the time. Um, and then you said, and for the listeners who don't know who David Hennessy was, he was a famous um, chief of police of New Orleans who was assassinated in October of 1890. 
in, in an incident which led to the mass arrest of Italians, Im, Italian immigrants in the city of New Orleans. Um, that led to one of the United States case of the, one of the worst mass lynching incidents in the history of the country in which 11 of the 19 individuals arrested for David Hennessy's murder were lynched uh, out on the streets of New Orleans. So just to give uh, our listeners here a little bit of time frame here, um, Chief of Police Hennessy was killed in 1890. Um, right. Um, what is uh, so? Which other chief of police did did uh, Norris uh, say in 1905 that he had um, brought this uh, up, uh, Tumblety up, you know? And when when did that occur? Do we know? Yeah, what happened was is uh, he didn't bring up any chief of police in 1880 because he did not work for the chief of police back then. He was he was working for the te- uh, you know he was a telegraph operator, but it was between 1880 and 1888 that he got the job there. So the first chief of police he talks about is Hennessy, and since Hennessy started in April 1888, he w- Hennessy was the guy that was in the office with Norris at that time. That so that kind of so what Norris was doing was using that. But then what happened was is. As I was saying, that the reason, uh, you know, th- that uh, they were asking Norris some questions on how was, uh, what was Tumbledy like in the last few years of his life. At that time, it was around 1900 he was talking about. Uh, and what happened was it was when, remember, uh, that has been recorded everywhere that in uh, Hot Springs, Tumbledy uh, uh, was, uh, and there was a theft in his room and he had thousands of dollars and some jewelry stolen. Um, actually, Tumbledy talked to um, Norris about that, and so, so the the so he was asked when was that, and he goes, well, the chief of police Gaster was uh, there at the time, so that right there was around 1900. So okay, we, so those are the two chiefs of police that he talked about. Okay, okay, so moving along from Richard Norris, then. Um, uh, and to remind my listeners, uh, you you had stated that none of these individuals that gave these um, depositions knew each other or knew what anyone else had said or whatever like that. This correct, is all in- independent um, uh, information they're providing. Go on to the next one, Mike. Uh, he had a couple Boston, I mean uh, Baltimore uh, attorneys that he would use throughout his time, but uh, at the end there, uh, he was he was uh, uh, the the attorney name. His name was Widener Frank M. Widener Jr. And what happened was is when uh, Tumbledy would go into his office, it was a it was a time when Tumbledy never dressed well anymore. He always he he, he dressed like he was a tramp and. Uh, but he would carry around his uh, little bank receipt, showed that he had so much money. But uh, he would go in there, and um, this particular attorney was helping Tumbley out with a case of that uh, the, his his eight, 1900 autobiography that never got published, or it got published, but it never got distributed or anything. But what happened was is when Tumbley at around 1900 1901 would pass out quite a bit. And one time he passed out, what Widener did is he passed out outside the office and Widener brought him into the office and said, sit down at my, you know, at this chair for a while. So then Widener told, uh, talked about 
anytime a woman would go inside his office, Tumblety, who always used to carry a newspaper, would cover the newspaper over his face every time a woman would go by. So then one time, the, the building had one telephone, and Widener had to go to the different room to make a phone call, and there was a woman in the room in his office as well as Tumblety. So he, he left to make his phone call. When he came back, the woman was outside the room, and he asked, why are you outside the room? And she said, that man is scaring me. So Tumbley was threatening him, her, and that uh, Weiner had asked, did he do anything to her? And she said, no, it's just the way he was, and uh, he, he's, he was uh, threatening to her. So that was another case where Weiner talked about um, Tumbley being uh, the... Uh, hating women. And then there was one case with the other attorney named Simpson that uh, said that whenever the subject of women were brought up, he would just, he would physically lift his nose up. And then there was a case where in uh, New Orleans, a judge Papin said that Tumblety told, uh, it's kind of a strange thing because judge Papin was in his twenties at the time, met Tumblety in an alley. So, who knows what judge was doing there, but he said that Tumblety said that he said that men should not be with women and all those kind of things. So uh, we have uh, four different uh, uh, sworn testimonies talking about Tumblety's misogyny and uh, that kind of conform to uh, what we've discovered about that match pretty much with Little Child's letter about having a bitter hatred of women. When Tumblety um, passed out on his stoop, uh, uh, dressed as, uh, in his tramp outfit, um, what year was that incident? Okay, so, that- well, there's a couple up. I'll go to the first. Well, the, uh, first of all, was Simpson. When he, uh, Simpson actually was Tumblety's attorney for quite some time, even though there are other comments earlier and other published materials saying that uh, Simpson was uh, introduced to Tumblety in 1901. That's not true. He uh, he met uh, Tumblety actually in his home in 1890 because his mother was friends with Tumblety in Liverpool back in the 1870s. And so there's a kind of a connection there. So, but Simpson was not yet a lawyer. He was in law school. So it was mid 1890s that he be, uh, that uh, Tumblety started coming to his office every time he'd come to Baltimore. And then 1898 is where he uh, really did some stuff and would go to Simpson for troubles he would get in because he would always go, uh, he, um, uh, he would go to the, um, um, the city parks, pick up a young man or an older boy, and then get in trouble. So then uh, Simpson was helping him out. But then at the time when uh, Simpson, uh, when, Right, in 1900, in, in basically in October 1901 was when he was upset with the people that were making his 1900-1901 autobiography. So it was Simpson that uh, helped him go to court. And uh, so Tumbley was not happy with that. So he accidentally met up with this other attorney named uh, Frank Widener. And that was October, middle of October, 1901, and it was November 1901 when the incident happened with the uh, the woman in the room. 
And so the Judge Papin incident was between 1901 and 1902. Okay. So, Brian Young, you have an idea that possibly something – you see a a change in Tumble Tea that you – You've, you believe you notice uh, after he was accused of being the Whitechapel murder. And here we're discussing incidents where he's menacing towards, towards women, which we knew that there has been uh, prior incidents that we already know about of him being menacing towards women or saying bad things about women, like on the streetcar, for instance, and things like that. Um, how does this uh, explain to our listeners kind of how you view Tumble Tea? Um, in this later period of his life. Post-1888, uh, Francis Tumblety's complete personality changed. Um, by 1890, he wasn't the flamboyant figure he always been. He liked to be the center <laughs> of attention. He liked to be everyone who was going to know who he was. He was, he was a peacock. And by 1890, he became... Much more introverted. Um, he became much quieter. He became um, less concerned with his own appearance. Um, he no longer put up the airs of being someone as important as he was. He started doing things almost to take attention away from himself. Um, I don't believe this was out of fear. I mean, he wasn't remorseful about what he'd done. But there was a definite change in personality. Something in this man's brain changed around 1890. And would you agree with that, Mike? Mike? Yes, and to be be more specific, especially because some people have brought up between 1888 and 1893, Tumblety is on record in giving charity. And he was giving charity, especially through the New York Herald. And so he would be giving ice. And we even have a corroborating evidence of a neighbor lady named Eleanor Elsheimer talking about that. And that happened around 1892. And so what happens is Tumblety was actually prepping up his next autobiography, which was published in 1893. In there, every single one of those charities were written there. And uh, it was at a time where he was still dressing well. And then what happened was, it was Eleanor Elsheimer said that it was right around that time he started wearing, when he would leave for the evening, he would wear his really disgusting clothes when he would walk the streets. And so what uh, the big surprise also is that Tumblety's anchor was always his family, uh, his siblings. And the biggest anchor of all was his brother, Lawrence. Lawrence died in 1898. That was pretty much the last time Tumblety ever wore any fancy kind of clothes. 100% of the time after that date, he was always in disgusting clothes. And if you want proof about how much his family uh, was his anchor, how much that brother meant to him, All you have to do is look at the stone that he bought for them in the cemetery. Now, it wasn't for the whole family. It wasn't for the other siblings. It was specifically for the parents and the brother. 
and he was to be buried alongside his brother, by the way, not alongside <laughs> his parents. The way they're, they're laid out, he's buried next to his brother. And uh, that tombstone is, it, it's a monument. And even for the time, it's incredibly extravagant. It sticks out of the cemetery in Rochester like a sore thumb, or as Mike once put it, sticks out of the ground like a middle finger at everybody. It's an incredibly elaborate, giant, I mean, up there, there's a picture on Mike's website of us standing next to it, and I'm six foot five to give it perspective, and it and it, and it dwarfs me. <laughs> now, don't we believe that Tumble T went slumming? Like, it, for instance, in the interview that he he gave uh, after his back when he uh, fled back to the United States about him being a suspect in the suspect in the Whitechapel murders, he indicates that he was dressed in an American slouch hat and. Um, I mean, it's assumed that he wasn't wearing, you know, a military uniform and riding a, a big horse with being followed by greyhound dogs when he's walking around in the streets of Whitechapel. So wouldn't you say that uh, his later appearance or people saying that he would dress in his worst attire before he went out and everything might might just be evidence that Tumblety enjoyed slumming in, in like the less reputable parts of town and could have been something that had been going on for yeah, I- 30 or 40 years, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. He, he would slum it, and he slummed it his whole life, I'm sure. Although I do love the image of him in the military outfit and the horse riding through Whitechapel. That's just wonderful. But it got to a point where he started letting people see him in these outfits and this look in the daylight. You know, this was a secret life. His slumming was a secret life, and it became his public persona after a little while in the 1890s. Oh, and by the way, there. Uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, th- we're, we're talking about 700 pages of documents plus. But one of these uh, people in their sworn testimony said that this was uh, years after the Ripper murders. Uh, they asked what he was wearing, and he was wearing, uh, you know, some disgusting kind of clothing, but was wearing a slouch hat. So I'm trying to find I'm trying to find that as we speak. But I, I, I when you said that, Jonathan, I remembered there was a case where he was, you know, because he usually wore a cap, and then uh, and then this case that I found him with a slouch hat again, and that was after the murders. And, and uh, but right now this is where you know my job as devil's advocate comes in, and I'm going to quote Allie Ryder from a previous podcast about. You know, you can't read anything into the slouch hat so much because that's the equivalent of today saying someone was wearing a baseball cap, is how Allie put it. Um, it was so commonplace that it's, that, that to me, as a historian and researcher, that is a moot point. Um, but his, his, his demeanor changed, his manner of dress. Like I said, he was allowing people to see him slumming instead of just... Uh, for lack of a better term, cruising. Yeah, he and it was, uh, and that was the, the the biggest issue. And one of the uh, one of the one of the attorneys in New Orleans, actually, uh, an attorney in New Orleans that was named uh, uh, George Bartley, made a comment that what Tumbley would do, he would ask him to sit and have lunch with him and read his autobiography to him over and over. While Tumbledy was raking a fork in his beard at, inside the restaurant, so it was uh, 
So you could see that Tumbledee was not just an image of you know, him hiding. Uh, that was the, that he uh, uh, had not showered whatsoever, and that was one of the big the issues with the mother superior and also the nurses at the St. John Hospital. That uh, the mother superior said, "You got to get rid of your clothes because they're too disgusting." So he went and he bought another suit, but he didn't wear it. He left it right there. So he, he even even though he bought the suit so he could stay there. He never wore it. He always wore his disgusting th stuff. And so then when he passed, they burned his suit, <laughs> his clothes. And uh, Norris had actually asked him the question, um, why? I mean, he, Norris was one person that knew how much money he had because he'd known him for 20 years. Uh, and Norris was trying to avoid him. After about 1898 to 1900, Norris said that he, especially now, Norris actually got married in 1895. So and then, but so he was trying to avoid Tumbledee because of Tumbledee's disgusting. Uh, they used to call him slovenly look or whatever. And so he asked Tumbledee uh, why he dressed that way, and he just kind of shrugged that answer off, and then just kind of and then would uh, and a number of uh, about three or four, no, actually more than that, uh, the the attorneys. And uh, uh, in Baltimore and also New Orleans would talk that he would walk the streets. Oh, actually in, uh, in Hot Springs as well, a couple of the hotel proprietors said that he would be walking the streets talking to himself. And so uh, it was, uh, and this was later in his life, as in uh, that, again, the reason, you know, so they were showing that uh, he was definitely not that uh, spry <clears throat> six foot two chicken that he was trying to get a lot of attention all of these, um, yeah, we have, for our sake of our listeners, I mean, we're talking, he died in 1903 at, yes. at age 70. So these incidents that occurred around 1900, 1901, 1902 are at a period of time when, when the clock is ticking on Tumblety. The Whitechapel murders were at this, this time 12, 13, 14 years in the past. Um, so... He wasn't necessarily hiding from anything, I wouldn't think, um, at that late remove from the Whitechapel murders. Um, but I think we we can be all in agreement that towards the end of his life, and, and especially the last couple of years of his life, he was exhibiting some pretty odd behavior, um, which... Compared to that behavior his whole life. <laughs> well, but um, behavior no, that that exactly. that is that more is more evidence of a person who's in decline, you know, yeah. me mentally than let's say, you know, as Mike said, the sprite, sprightly, you know, gallivanting figure that he was in his earlier years. So okay, so we have Richard Norris's testimony, which I think is the most. Um, important of of what you've revealed so far, and then those are the the three attorneys. I kind of look at as like just um, another example of what we had already known about him just making women feel uncomfortable in his presence. You know, mm -hmm. um, which which he is he he has been known to do already. What else is there, Mike? Well, the uh, one of the things uh, going through his history that happened, uh, which I think is quite important. If you recall, in January 1888, he told a uh, Toronto Globe reporter that 
he was in constant dread of sudden death because of his kidney and heart disease. Right. And so, and one of the things that he writes down in his autobiography is what they call, what he used to call hydrotherapy, which is what well, he said that was great for anyone that had heart disease. Well, he didn't, he did not admit that he had heart disease in his autobiographies, but that right there tells you that it's one of the reasons why he would go to hot springs. And um, the uh, testimonies clearly point that he started hot springs in 1880. And uh, it was not only hot springs, but what happened was he changed, uh, and he would stay in these locations. His he was a uh, ubiquitous. He was a constant traveler. He, that was part of his nature. But he, it was more in the southern area, and uh, and so what he was doing before that was that remember in New York City in in Brooklyn that he had opened up an office, you know his uh, herb store office. But when you see that 1880 is when his now, he would still continue to go to New York, Baltimore, even Rochester, and these other southern cities. And then before 1888, half the year he would go to England. He had no time in the United States to really open up an office. And there is no record of him opening up an office in the United States after 1880. And so he really did not. And so what his his lifestyle was basically... Um, you know, different. And so he would, his pattern, and this is one of the nice things that the the documents show is we, before this, we really don't have a lot of information on Tumblety pretty much between 1880 and 1903, except the big, huge incident when he was in England. But this right here, now with all the testimonies, when you look at that and you can match them up, you can almost go month for month where Tumblety was, and this is one of the things that Brian was talking about, you could see his pattern. Now, when uh, I have a sworn testimony, and I can't find it right here, that, well, he, about four or five people, he said that he was, he had, uh, he focused more on his heart disease and that he could die any moment. And the earliest one I found, he said that was about 1883. So remember, it was 1888 when he said that. So here is a person that always claimed that he could cure all, even in his autobiographies he talked about that, but he couldn't do it himself, for himself, and he would always blame women for the curse of the land. And so you could see uh, this hatred especially, but there's a, the, the pattern between 1800 and all the way to 1903, and right in the middle of that is that 1888 incident. So... Uh, so it, it's the nice thing about this is we now have a better picture of Tumblety, where he was going, what he was doing, when he, and one thing that was consistent is that he would be uh, preying upon young men. Where do you think this all leads? How do they, uh, how do all the pieces fit together? Well, I, I think when you look at the, uh, uh, one of the things that I'm going to be focusing on later, which is not, you know, uh, is that when you look at all serial uh, serial killers, uh, I talked to you about this before, that Francis Tumbley was not a, uh, uh, would never have been a sadosexual serial killer like a Jeffrey Dahmer. That's why it wouldn't matter that he was uh, homosexual because that's not, he did not have uh, an impulse to sexually kill these people, so he would not have he would not have focused his energy on that. His was more. Remember, we have uh, 
anger retaliatory and forensic scientist Dr. Brent Turvey is the one that talks about when he looked at the Ripper victims, also another uh, forensic pathologist named Dr. Eckert, they saw two different uh, motives. They saw anger retaliatory and then a reassurance oriented. Um, what that anger retaliatory means you know, here it is. He's attacking what makes women women, hatred of women. The reassurance oriented would be the reason for uh, doing display, the reason for collecting trophies, maybe even harvesting, because of a, is a uh, basic personal inadequacy. And one of the things that the uh, we talked about today when we look at serial offenders, they are not insane. That's why they can't use that as a, an excuse in court that are personality disorders. And the, the three big personality disorders, the antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and then we uh, and then there was a third one. Um, I don't remember. i got to remember what that was. But in the case with Tumbledee, I don't think anybody would argue that this man was a narcissist. And so all through his life, everything was about exploitation. He was uh, one of the arguments that Tumbledee, uh, when he was doing his Indian herb doctor business, a lot of people call him a Thompsonian because Samuel Thompson was a person that kind of scientized or, I mean, uh, made it scientific, this herbal medicine, herbal kind of uh, cures. But Tumbledee was not a Thompsonian. He utilized him. He exploited that information. His motive was money. And so you can see all that. And we have some sworn testimony of a, uh, one of the, uh, the attorney in New Orleans saying he could see that Tumbledee's primary motive was making money. And then uh, so it was all about his money at the time. And so what we see is this, this uh, narcissistic personality disorder. And the big thing about that is uh, there is a lack of remorse. And so one of the things is, is that uh, these, uh, the, the, St. Louis uh, documents that have been discovered really, really reinforces this man as a uh, a man only about himself. And I'd like to I'd like to add that uh, whether or not you're in the camp that believes Francis Tumblety was Jack the Ripper, um, uh, much like you, Jonathan, I just find Francis Tumblety a fascinating suspect in general, not just as a suspect but as a person. Um, as a as a researcher myself, um, the issue with the knives was big for me outside of the Ripper case because it corroborates the fact that he was claiming to be a field surgeon in the Civil War who could do amputations. You know, there was people out there who said that he claimed that, but there was no evidence of that. Well, you know, now we see he's carrying the knives around, claiming that he could be a field surgeon during the Civil War. Um, so even outside the Ripper case, there's just fascinating elements about this guy's life and, you know, puzzle pieces that were missing that uh, kind of help, you know, straighten things out. I think the biggest thing for me would be the also when, with Norris is that here is a person that um, said uh, Norris was when he was giving his testimony, this was embarrassing testimony for Norris. It never made the newspapers. None of this, none of this was in the newspapers. He was a married man working for the uh, New Orleans Police Department. He had to admit homosexual acts. For 20 years. 
that and so when you look at his testimony you could see him kind of backing off in certain areas about that particular case but so then uh, so it kind of there's a, a number of other reasons why we can see that Norris uh, was was uh, really telling the truth and uh, so and it was it's quite intriguing that he makes that comment about being women being disemboweled and so it either is a lie or it's really quite damning for him to being a person that. And, and again, Norris wasn't doing this for the newspaper. Norris wasn't doing this for publicity. So there was there was no reason for him to lie. There was no sensationalism involved because it wasn't about sensationalism at that point. And it was not a fact that he hated Tumble. He actually, you could see that he had a good relationship with Tumble even <laughs> at the very end. So to give that information, he was not going to get any kind of uh, money for it. He didn't get any money, any, any recognition. So it's really an intriguing comment first, and then to see that it was Norris. A man that, uh, now you think about those New Orleans, or the police departments at the time, much of the classified information would be coming across the wire. And Norris was responsible for all that kind. So we know that he was there for years, so he was considered a credible person with the police department. Okay, so let me explain something to our listeners. Two weeks ago, we recorded an hour-long podcast that you have just heard. And now it is two weeks later, and due to some strange confidentiality situations concerning some of the information that we were discussing about the information that was discovered in these documents. We've had to delay uh, speaking about a couple of topics for a couple weeks. So now we are back with Michael Hawley and we've played musical chairs with Brian Young uh, Brian Young is not with us on this portion of the show, but with us is Allie Ryder. Hi, Allie. Hello, Allie. Hello. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and hi, Mike. Hello. How are you doing? Pretty good. So we last spoke two weeks ago, which is going to seem a little odd to our listeners, but I hope they understand what's going on here. And since then, um, not only is there stuff that you can talk about that you weren't able to talk about the last time we spoke so it's kind of saving the best for last, but you've also uh, you're also able to share with us some even newer information on the topics that we've already discussed. Is that right? Well, yeah. And then I'm, one of the things was that uh, I have already was already in the process of writing another book because of so much research that had been discovered that uh, that was even before the St. Louis records were discovered. So the book got ever so thicker. So uh, so this particular one, we're talking specifically about the St. Louis records, but how they fit so well with certain other discoveries that have occurred. Okay. But I could... Go I ahead. Could yeah, go ahead and, and start explaining all that to us. Okay. And then so remember that Richard Norris was the young man that uh, Tumbley met around 1880 or 1881 when he began to go to the Mar Mardi Gras every February for the next 20 years and uh, Richard Norris was a, a younger uh, teenager at the time and he was at the theater and then uh, Tumbley had met 
and Tumbley had taken a liking to young uh, Norris. And so I would continue here. I'm going to uh, read a little more about what Norris had said in his testimony. He said, uh, says, he, he bought me several suits of clothes and he never attempted to do anything wrong with me until one night he took me to his room and he locked the door on me. I don't know whether he was a humbuggy or not, but he did make a bluff at me with one of those big knives. He said, you cannot get out of this room while I have this. I had the door locked and he turned the gas low. And he then unbuttoned his pants and alongside me and he caught a hold of my penis and played with it and looked at it. I expected at once that he was, what he was, that he was a, what's commonly known as a cocksucker. I made up my mind right then and there that he would have to kill me as I don't go up against those kinds of people. He then let go of me and stood up, unbuttoned his pants and showed me something and he told me that he was not good. He was trembling and was very nervous. He asked me to go to bed with him that he enjoyed it just as much as a woman did. Of course, I did not know at the time the difference between a morphodite and never did know what he was, uh, never did know that he was a morphodite before. So we got in bed and cocked his legs up, and but I did not get down and look at him. I stood off and he looked at and looked at him and he insisted upon having connection with him. I told him I would do this tomorrow, and he did everything, coaxed me, done everything, offered me money, made me promise that I would be back in the morning at 10 o'clock. He gave me $20 that night. So I was there the next morning, and I met him coming down the door. He asked me to go down to the custom house that morning with him. Then it continues, and so the, the term morphodite was clarified uh, later on in the deposition so the, the attorney asked, did I understand you say that 20 years ago, you examined this person sufficiently to see that he was neither man nor woman, but that what he was commonly called a morphodite or a hermaphrodite? And, the, and then Norris answered, he was, no doubt about that. Then the attorney asked, and at the time he wanted you to have sexual relations with him, did he say so? And Norris answered, yes, sir, I could tell you more than that. He threw me on the bed and we had quite a tussle. He threw me on top of him, but I was pretty handy youngster than myself. Was a wild fellow and took all sorts of chances. I was on the money side. Saw he was stuck on me and said, I have got to bribe you if you want to do anything like that. I went over and told my friend Doyle about it and he said, why don't you take a trick at him to see how it goes? So Norris, when he was younger, would take the opportunity to have sexual relations with a, with a man. And so Norris himself continued his friendship with Tumbledee all the way to about 1901, 1902. So this experience did not frighten him away. And Norris himself got married in 1895. And Norris was, uh, was a telegraph operator for the New Orleans Police Department from 1888 to uh, at the time of this uh, deposition, 1905, and continued to be so. So uh, the, the telegraph operator was the person that would handle classified telegraphs, uh, cable communication with the police department. So 
he was uh, not just a person that was uh, off the streets. So then the curiosity was uh, also what happened, on, that was in New Orleans, but in uh, St. Louis in 1904, August 25th, uh, in front of the commissioner during this, this case, they interviewed the undertaker of Francis Tumblety. The man was named Fred Nash. And, uh, and basically the question to Fred Nash was uh, a few things, but one that is specifically about this was anything else unusual about their co the corpse? Well, his testicle. He had only one testicle and his penis was about the size of your thumbnail. So this particular undertaker who embalmed Tumbley's body, and then it was sent in May 1903, then it was sent up to uh, Rochester, New York. He also told the attorney that, that he had been in uh, operation for 23 years, and on average he would do 300 corpses a year about, and he had never seen this condition before. So the question was, this uh, was, there is a, there is a, uh, hermaphrodite was a kind of a, a generic term for anyone, what we call today as an intersex condition, which could be one of them is uh, what they call micropenis, which would mean just male genitals. But then there is also the possibility of having male and female. So then to corroborate this, the Baltimore attorney for Tumblety, Robert Simpson, when he was asked, he has uh, something interesting to say as well. He said uh, um, during his uh, questioning, he answered, my candid opinion about it is that he had a habit of resorting to unnatural practices on little boys he watched very closely and frequented the parks a good deal. Then the, the attorney asked, watched by whom? The answer was the policeman. He would dodge around sometimes, he would go to Patterson Park and sometimes to Druid, Druid Hill Park. Then again, in the fall of 1902, he would have a fainting, he had his fainting spell in my office. He was sitting on the chair with no arms and he fell off. I raised the window and opened his coat. I noticed he wore no suspenders. He was breathing very heavily. My brother was present. I opened his trousers and as I say, he wore no suspenders and he seemed to be shaped like a woman. He, we picked him up and in picking him up, his trousers came down and I noticed he had the penis that was scarcely as large as the end of your finger. We said nothing about it to him. He then went shopping, uh, or he went stopped at Saratoga Street and a couple of days later, and then I kind of stop it and I'll go into, uh, he says, I know, and then he's, uh, when Tumblety came back to him, Simpson asked, I know what is the uh, matter, oh no, let's see, uh, continue. Um, he came back and asked me what he did while he was sitting in that condition. I told him that he had a fainting spell and I said, you ought to go and get some treatment. He told me, I know what is the matter with me. I have heart trouble and everything becomes black to blank to me. Everything turns dark. I told him I ought to, uh, you ought to wear suspenders. I said to him, I asked him the question whether or not he was a hermaphrodite. The reason I asked him was I had heard it before I had heard it so much from various police about him, I thought it would uh, put the question to just for curiosity. He asked me, what do you, what 
what do you ask that for? I said, your trousers came down and we saw everything you had. He said, do not ever tell that to anybody. That is a misfortune which has followed me all through my life. That is true. Another characteristic about him was he had a voice like a girl, but with all that, it was only uh, it was only up until the latter part of 1902 that I noticed that his uh, he fa was failing rapidly. So the interesting thing, Simpson uh, connected. Actually, oh, then he continues a little later, and he says he seemed to be clever, hardworking man. He was peculiar, and all that he had a voice like a girl. He was a very polite fellow, but he had peculiarities about him. Then the attorney asks, "What was the attitudes? What was his attitude towards women generally?" His answer was, "He had no use for them." Do you do you recall circumstances which illustrate this attitude? The attorney asked, and then Simpson answered, "If the question of women was brought up, why the first thing he would do would be to turn his nose up." Another characteristic about the man was that. He was a he was large and well-built man, but the form of his waist down had the shape of a woman. So the interesting thing is that Simpson is connecting both the male and the female. And I did not have it with me, but the one of the interesting things that happened was uh, the the physicians at St. John's Hospital were interviewed also, and uh, one of them, the attorney, continued to ask. One of the physicians, uh, his name was uh, Dr. Tem, T-E-M-M, if he knew what a hermaphrodite was. And uh, the physician said a man that had both male and female genitals. genitals, And then the, uh, the judge stopped that line of questioning so that it would not continue. So, the, so it was, it's pretty, pretty clear that Tumblede had some kind of condition, again, with, today we would call an intersex condition, the condition. And uh, one of my uh, pediatrician friends talks about this a situation today where they have to deal with that is a, a condition called partial androgen insensitivity syndrome. And it's the, uh, apparently it's the inability of the cell to respond to the masculine part, the androgens. And phenotypically, there's a grading situation where uh, of genital masculinity. So it's called the Quigley scale, where you go from entirely male genitals to kind of mostly male genitals and uh, kind of uh, female genitals to entirely female genitals. So it's kind of a scale. So it, it seems to be that uh, Tumbley kind of fit in that kind of category. So the interesting thing that I had researched also that there was a recent long-term study that showed that um, uh, they studied on with adolescents that 39% of those studied, those adolescents, showed conditions of psychopathology. Was not psychopath, that's a different, a different thing, but had uh, psychological issues because of that. Could be uh, arranging from psych a bit of psychosis to also just uh, um, other types. So the, the big point that I wanna make here is I am not trying to say that the reason why Francis Tumbley could very well be Jack the Ripper is because he was a half from Aphrodite. That is absolutely not the case. Because what, uh, what I'm saying here is when Francis Tumbley was 17 years old, 
that's when he came to America. And when he was an adolescent, he was in Ireland at the time of the potato famine when there were mass starvations and that he had this condition. He was in a very strong Catholic family in Tumblety, was always going to church up to the time of his death. And what uh, that condition, in, uh, if you ever marry in the Catholic Church, which I've been part of, is that the purpose of marriage is procreation. And basically where you get the idea of consummating the marriage. And Tumblety did not have the ability. He had a sexual dysfunction, which he admitted that the, his male genital part did not work. So what it would have done is cause uh, feelings of inadequacy uh, at uh, a young age. And one of the things about uh, narcissistic personality disorder, which would be the disorder that uh, they, they diagnosed uh, serial killers such as Ted Bundy, that this type of narcissist has lacks remorse. And Tumblety, one of the things that I've been researching quite extensively is that Tumblety was clearly a narcissist. And then so I go into that then I want to find out if he lacked remorse uh, throughout his life. And one of the things about which we were talking about with the Indian herb doctor uh, job or was uh, it actually worked. Some of the things were, uh, were actually quite effective, but he promised complete cure-alls, which they did not do. It did not happen. So he was exploiting these people time and time again. So you can see that uh, this, uh, the, underlying basis of narcissism is actually uh, personal inadequacy or some type of in insecurity. So his condition may have been one piece of the puzzle of his personal inadequacy as a young, as a young man. So, uh, but it's quite a, a, a shocker. And I think Jonathan, you were talking about this too, is how, how many years that we've been researching Tumblety extensively and nobody knew this. It's pretty interesting. I mean, it's definitely interesting information. It points no more towards his, you know, being Jack the Ripper. It's interesting to find out something about Tumble Tea that, of course, as you said, up until now, nobody's known. Right. And what the, the good point is, is just like you were saying, it in itself, that was at the very beginning of his life. And if he certainly, if he was Jack the Ripper, this happened when he was around a little over 50 years old. So that condition would not have been the primary reason. But when you look at his life, and this is one of the things that my next book is going to get, I'm going to focus uh, strictly uh, quite a bit on, is there's actually a year that his life changed. Uh, his condition was right at the very beginning during his time of adolescence would have been at a point where it was kind of developing his, his basically his mind. But that would not have been the reason for him being a serial killer when he's in his 50s. There, his life was filled with certain events that had occurred. And so my point is that if Francis Tumbley was Jack the Ripper, it's because of narcissistic personality disorder. That right there is where the lack of remorse. And that's what I was searching for throughout Tumbley's life. And that's what I believe I've found. And especially 1880 was a significant moment in his life between 1878 and 1880. Prior to that, his primary goal in life was money making, making money. And it was not always because of the Indian herb doctor. He tried to avoid that persona 
soon after the Civil War. So that's why even when he was the great American doctor in England. And so that has some effects. But after 1880, that was when he began going to Hot Springs, Arkansas, because of hydrotherapy. His primary goal now was his physical condition. So he knew that he had chronic, uh, chronic disease and that it was affecting his life that changed his life in 1880. So half the time between 1880 and 1888, he was continuing to go to London. And so inside his autobiographies, it's quite revealing what's going on. Uh, some of the big reasons why he was going to London was still to try to get from the United States the money, the $100,000 he thought the United States owed him. So he thought the British government could help him with that. But he was also there for other reasons, which I'll talk about like uh, later on. But uh, at that time, right. was the, the chronic condition you refer to is his heart condition. Both, both his heart and his kidney. So he knew he had both heart, kidney and heart failure, right. heart uh, uh, disease. In January 1888, when he talked to the Toronto Globe uh, reporter, he said that he was in constant dread of sudden death because of kidney and heart disease, the year of the murders, that he said that. But I do have one uh, St. Louis record that he told, uh, continued to tell people a couple times that he could die today. He could die tomorrow, or he could outlive you. So he was saying that later on in his life. And then one of the things that Brian talks about is that he had, there's a kind of a change in his uh, psychosis in a way uh, when you see the, uh, the records when he gets back. And so uh, that's kind of a volume of material. So I purposely go through each and every one of those because it's a lot of material. Okay, so I have a couple questions. I'm trying. I'm trying to figure. I I understand how the um, hermaphroditic condition can be one piece of a puzzle of which several pieces would fit together to cause this uh, narcissistic uh, um, personality disorder that um, are is a common trait among serial killers. That's just like Sickert's fistula. Right, or it's one of a handful of circumstances. But I'm trying to understand if by 1880, eight years before the Whitechapel murders, he knew he was suffering from kidney and heart disease. Yes, and and that um, cast such a dark shadow, an additionally uh, even darker shadow over him. Let's say than what he had. Uh, been um, prior to that due to his hermaphroditic problem what in in theory in 1888 would have triggered the Whitechapel murders what how did the combination of those two is it is it still is it do you still believe in this a quest for a cure elixir of life there, well, there's a couple things. One is that uh, I do believe in the, there it was uh, Dr. Turvey talks about anger retaliatory when he looks at the, the victims of the Whitechapel murders. But he talks about another 
behavior that he sees and it's called reassurance oriented and reassurance oriented is uh, based on a personal inadequacy things such as displaying your victims and uh, things and also collecting things to uh, reminisce in the past so those that dr turvey talks about are uh, behaviors that are reassurance oriented and for with the narcissistic personality disorder because the uh, the the basis is uh, personal inadequacy. You tend to see some of that. So, in the Whitechapel murders, you see someone with a uh, some uh, a personal inadequacy. And so, the display thing, which we were discussing actually at the earlier Rippercast, is, uh, is I think most prevalent where with uh, Mary Kelly because he had so much time, he could could kind of uh, uh, con- uh, bring out to complete fruition his offender signature, not M.O., as in uh, maybe possibly cutting the throat so the heartbeat stops so when he eviscerates, it's not the blood splatter all over the place. He displayed Mary Kelly exactly like the anatomical Venus, which is a shock to me when you look at the two, they're almost identical. And then so, and Venus is the uh, goddess of physical love, the one that uh, that uh, the uh, would attract young men. And what he said was, what women, especially uh, when he talked to Norris, remember he said that the night walkers uh, should be disemboweled. He said that he said women were the curse of the land. And in that case, if uh, there would be two possibilities, that especially the collection of those, uh, those specimens, if you look at any other suspects, they're not connected to the uterus, the kidney, and the heart. Surprisingly, Francis Tumblety is connected to the uterus, the kidney, and the heart. He had kidney and heart disease, and if he blamed those women, you could see that part of doing that. And remember, he uh, he was already connected with the uterus collections uh, with the uteruses before, so it kind of fits huh. that uh, that would be the case. So I would say there would be two possibilities. One is. He is doing it like other serial killers with reassurance-oriented uh, behaviors, as more of, uh, and you know, he's he wants to collect it um, uh, for reminiscence. The other is at that particular time, there was a big uh, scientific research on finding elixirs, and surprisingly, in the wealthy West End of London, at the exact same time the uh, Lyceum Theater and also a second theater was playing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and that is an elixir kind of story and we know Tumblety always went to the theater that's what theater and that's where he met people he even admitted or he said that he was at the Beefsteak Club which is inside the Lyceum Theater he might not have been there been invited but he certainly knew of that place and it's interesting that Bram Stoker was the manager of the Lyceum Theater, and his best friend was Sir Henry Hall Kane, who in the 1870s was pals with Francis Tumblety. It's kind of a surprising connection there. But what I also do is I find another, a couple things inside his autobiographies. There's so much his autobiographies actually do, do reveal. The 1893 autobiography was his, uh, well, was his last one. He was trying to do the 1901 autobiography, but the 1893 autobiography says he said that there is no uh, he called it uh, 
an elixir of life, but he called it uh, the, uh, but basically he said that there is no elixir of life out there. He never said that in his 1889 autobiography or anything earlier. It's like he tried, it didn't work. And then that possibly could have been the case. So two possibilities, as I said. If the, uh, I mean, the, the elixir idea is uh, very intriguing, and that's why I wrote about it before, but it also could be just as simple as he was so angry, the women, these women were the curse of the land. The same year the Ripper murders occurred, he told a reporter that he was in constant dread of sudden death. Just think of that if you were a person, especially a narcissist, that you were thinking you're gonna die. Uh, and so you can see things developing right there. Uh, and so that's some but, of the things that are quite So true. I'm confused because like, and I apologize because I wasn't in on the first part of this. So it seems to me though that, that, that you're seeming, so I took some abnormal psych classes way back. I am in no way an expert, and so I'm just sort of calling. But it seems like this would be a direct contradiction to the idea of Tumblety being a narcissist. Because by, you know, everything that I've read in studies, narcissists are consumed by an exaggerated sense of their own grandeur and size. And him being preoccupied with a micro penis. It would be the opposite of a narcissistic personality disorder. Like that would be like inferiority, not narcissism. Like you're, it, it you're, doesn't. You're work almost. With you are almost correct. What it is is remember, a narcissism deep down is personal inadequacy. So it would be someone like that, as in. But remember, if you look at everyone. Wait, of, wait, wait. What? Where? What? A narcissist. You, you believe that narcissists actually feel like they're inadequate? Narcissists feel like they're overly adequate. Uh, but deep down, if you, I mean, I, I report this, if you look at narcissistic personality disorder, you can look it up, that it's based on insecurity. It's not based on okay. self-confidence. And so where, Okay, where is that? Where would where would I look that up? Because I've read uh, like the DSM, you know, diagnosis of it, and I've never right, heard where they know what the cause of narcissistic but, yeah, personality disorder is. I record about report about four or five <laughs> places where it talks about that narcissistic personality disorder is based on personal inadequacy and insecurity. So look it up, and you will see what I'm talking about when you see it. So what I'm saying is that a narcissist, if you look at Tumblety. You read his writings. It's all about grandiosity. It's all about him <laughs> knowing the best people. And also, one of the, the reasons why I say that there's a it's based on insecurity, because one of the elements of narcissists is that they're very retaliatory. They're very angry. They, they hate when someone, uh, crit, they don't accept criticism well. That's a narcissist. That's not a confident person. Why do they not accept criticism well? Is because deep down it's an insecurity. But if you look at Tumblety, all the time I have reports, especially even in the uh, St. Louis documents, where his, his uh, nephew, Michael Fitzsimmons, said when he came back from Canada, he, would, he, he had an air of superiority and he would speak down to all of us. He did that ever since uh, he gave back. And you look at his writings, especially his 1889 Autobiography is the gifted and talented and eccentric Tumblety, and then he talks about all the the uh, heads of state in Europe that he'd seen, and uh, so I kind of I put that into extensive detail on how much that he just it's kind of a higher level of grandiosity. So, 
Antisocial personality disorders are the ones who gears towards serial killer. Narcissistic personality disorders tend to, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm generalizing grossly here and you absolutely can have a narcissist who becomes a killer. So, but like usually those guys end up becoming CEOs and, uh, you know, you, there's, there's a whole broad spectrum of psychopaths. The well, ones right, who end Exactly, but I can tell you though, the, the research I showed that it said at least 30 some percent serial killers are narcissistic personality disorder. And it's not just one place I found that. Certainly true, antisocial personality disorder. But the other thing is that a lot of times they have a very difficult time separating the two because both of them have very similar uh, conditions, elements to them. So narcissistic personality disorder is absolutely part of the serial offender stuff. Now, it is absolutely true, though, that we have... um, um, you know, it, lots of people can have narcissistic personality disorder and not be serial killers. There's got to be more to it. But and you can be a narcissist without it actually being a psychological disorder. I mean, just like right. you can but also, be. You Dr. <laughs> but also Dr. Turby showed that when he looked at the, uh, the uh, Jack the Ripper murders, he did not see sadosexual. They did not attack the vagina. What he saw was anger retaliatory and... Um, the uh, when I was talking about reassurance oriented, so he was the second one that <laughs> too. So I mean, we can argue that, but none of, of course, none of us are experts. What I'm doing is, I'm showing there are experts that have looked, modern experts that have looked at the Jack the Ripper victims, and don't see sadosexual. Right, and they it's, don't see it's all uh, very uh, it, because I just interviewed Tom Westcott uh, last week, and he would immediately argue that there's ample evidence that the victims were penetrated in their vaginas. So the experts that you cite, you know, it's like pick and choose and re- read the evidence how you want. You know what I'm saying? It's all, it all, there's a couple of and, problems. And what, exactly. And, and, and what I'll say, right, you're right, though. And what I'll say this, if Jack the Ripper was sadosexual, Francis Tumbley was not Jack the Ripper. Right. What I'm saying is that if it was anger retaliatory, there is, to me, there is no better suspect. Right. So, and, and so it's kind of like a two-pronged, it's kind of like a two, I'm seeing a, a two-pronged problem here. One is we're trying to psychologically diagnose a man who's been dead for 120 years. And then secondly, like I had said, we're, we're kind of trying to reach the, our conclusions based on the opinions of experts in their field who might not have access to the same information that we do today as far as the right the, you know to the extent of the injuries all the newspaper reports every newspaper report that was written about the case describes the wounds differently or doesn't describe them at all so right. so it kind of comes down to um i mean Here's what I will say, in, in, in that you, I do believe you made a good point about targeting the heart and the kidneys and the uterus in the victims um, and, and having those three happen to coincidentally coincide with what at this period in Tubblety's life he was probably most um, distraught about, his own condition – and and then lay upon that 
his obvious um, hatred towards women, and in particular uh, women of the prostitute class. Right. Um, I understand where you're going with the psychological profiling, um, but even putting that aside, it makes him a stronger candidate. I mean, I won't say, you know, it, it, it raises him up the totem pole of suspects a few notches um, than he was previously. Exactly. Uh, if anybody asks me, are you 100% sure that Francis Tumbley is Jack the Ripper? Uh, and if I said yes, and I, I, I quit because it's really, that's, that would ruin it for me because it's always a constant research. I love research. And we'll never going to, uh, and it's, what my concern was is when I first got into the, uh, this, I noticed there was so much misinformation on this man. And so what I did is I decided to research the research. So I looked at the researchers, not their arguments, but I looked at the research and I was discovering mistakes. And so what I was, uh, so I continued with that. And then that's when uh, it's, it just, it's just more and more gets dug up. And this last one, even though just like, uh, we're, I think we all agree that the hermaphrodite thing is not a direct connection to that. What a surprise. Holy moly that this guy that we didn't know that he was at all this. It was, and, and apparently, you know, his life was go to the cities. And the, one of the big reasons why he would go to the cities was to prey upon uh, older boys or younger teenagers. And he would be arrested. And there's actually more cases of him being arrested uh, that uh, some uh, in the future you're going to see some of these. But the, just like uh, Robert Simpson said, his lawyer, the police knew about it. So how did that get uh, hidden for so long? So it's really, it's, the, the guy's just so interesting to research. I did find that pretty interesting that he would be trailed and followed by the police while he stalked children in public parks. Yes. Well, that's pretty amazing. Well, what I also found is that he was very elusive, and there's a couple cases where uh, that people were following him and he would disappear so then the police got smart. They would just wait at the parks, and he would come. That's how they would wait for him. And so wow. we do have a case, a case of 1889 that we have two Scotland Yard detectives waiting at a at a uh, a park. Lo and behold, on the other uh, the other uh, part, uh, seat is Francis Tumbley. So it's kind of an intriguing thing that happened just before the McKenzie murder. This was prior to the McKenzie murder. So again, I'm sorry if it, this might have been covered in the in the part that I wasn't here. So you believe that he was anger retaliatory against the women because? Ing Want sorry, I'm trying to. I'm trying. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little okay, confused because I mean, there's still a component of you. You said there wasn't a sexual component, but even in anger retaliatory, there's still a sexual component well, wherein it's usually, normally. Right. There's usually, the rape, and then right, I kill you exactly. because of the guilt. Kind. Of. So I, usually, I'm confused on exactly what the right. what the motive the motive is. Right. Usually, anger anger retaliatory when it's uh, misogyny, the man is heterosexual, and so one of the things that you can really do is rape the woman. That would get them back. Well, Tumblety could not do that physically, but he was also gay, 
So he, his anger retaliatory. The reason why he hated women, and this was one of the things I covered in the Ripper's haunts, but also what we found out when he told Norris, he hated not all women, only women that could seduce young men, decoy young men is what she said, away from their intended lovers, older males. And so he, that's what he hated. Remember, he told uh, Norris that there's two things that are bad for a young man cigarettes and then women and then all night walkers should be disemboweled meaning what to me was really surprising that norris did not know those other cases situations when tumbledee was complaining about women because of that so it was kind of a surprise to see that norris even said that so it's kind of corroborates that norris certainly did have a relationship with tumbledee so okay, so you believe that his killing of the women was more like the cleaning of the streets kind of murder. Uh, there's a thing called uh, uh, like uh, there's two types of narcissists. Uh, it's two different names, but it's called aggressive narcissist or malignant narcissism, where they'll they'll snap. And, and what's interesting, one of the characteristics of an aggressive narcissism is ubiquity, constant traveling. So we have, uh, and what they do is they will snap when uh, they, and they retaliate. So I'm, what I'm saying is it would have been a, a condition of snapping. It would not be a case of, let's say, an, a sexual impulse to continue with this, like a sadosexual situation. So one of the questions is why would Tumbley not continue killing is because he snapped. That would be one of the things. The other is what I, was, I had written about in the Ripper's Haunts, is that there was a scientific reach research in England, London, for the elixir of life, and so this is I, I continue writing more about that in the the next book, but so here there's some reason why he's going to London since eight you know since uh, all the way till 1888 once and sometimes twice a year, and in his autobiography autobiographies he claims it's because of his medical research. That could very well have been true because there are certain times that Tumbley did tell the truth in his autobiographies. And then so it was at that time where we see, uh, let's see, one of the things, the people that worked at the Lyceum Theater, they were part of this Masonic group called the Order of the Golden Dawn, which their primary goal was to look for the Philosopher's Stone, which is the elixir of life. And then so, uh, but it, uh, but that would be part of, uh, you know, you know, he's, he's now... Um, trying anything, but uh, clearly that would not have worked, of course. And then lo and behold, a couple years after, in 1893, he finally admits that there's no such thing as a uh, uh, an elixir of life. So it's so both of those ideas. So what I'm saying is, if Tumbley was Jack the Ripper, it would have been anger retaliatory because of those women, and it could very well either have been just like all of the. Uh, reassurance-oriented serial killers that they're collecting tokens for that reason, um, or it would have been he was looking for, just like, remember, Scotland Yard was indeed uh, investigating the possibility of that. And uh, that's what I had written about before. That's what you know, my Elixir of Life article was about, that they actually, somebody from the, uh, an engineer from the West End contacted Scotland Yard and said, 
he heard that Jack the Ripper was looking for this. Mixing herbs, how surprising, herbs with the fluids of the uterus. So uh, so that would be uh, uh, quite intriguing to me. So huh. so it's, it's just kind of a, 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 I mean, there's more to come. <laughs> and, and remind us uh, how the judge and his uh, contesting of in the contesting of his will ended up ruling as far as whether or not Tumble T was of sound mind in 1903. Uh, it, yeah, and that actually was incorrect in any other research that's been done. What happened was the case lasted five years. So what happened was is the 1903 will uh, they did not have the usual statement at the very beginning of the will where it says all other wills before this should be null and void, something to that effect. Mm -hmm. It did not have that. So what happened is also Tumbley did, did not bequeath all of his his estate, only a third of it. So he still had, uh, it was upwards of over $3 million in today's value that he had, and he only bequeathed a third of it. And uh, he bequeathed some of it to charity. And then um, what happened was in um, the, he would bequeath he uh, $10,000 to Mary Fitzsimmons and the two brothers he gave nothing to. That happened and there were like 30 different nephews and nieces. So they tried to fight it, say that Tumbley was not of sound mind and body, therefore the will is null and void. So while that was going on, then there was another will that popped up and that was the Baltimore one, 1901, where a Major Kemp was the man that uh, was actually um, uh, brought that forward and what I show that it was not a fake will and then so they treated it properly and the the attorneys are required to present wills that are before the last will and testament just in case the last will and testament the 1903 becomes null and void then the 1901 kicks in but the other argument that's not what Kemp was arguing Kemp was arguing this I accept the 1903 will but it's only a third. The 1901 will talks about the two-thirds that he hasn't talked about. Therefore, Tumbledy's last wishes are both the 1901 will and the 1903 will. So what happened was, in 1908, the judge said uh, that the 1903 will was complete. And once he said that, it was the only last will and testament. Therefore, the 1901 will is not even going to be looked at. So it didn't say that it was bad. And then, uh, so there was incentive for people to say that that Baltimore will was bad because it, because Tumbley bequeathed $1,000 to uh, the uh, Home for Fallen Women, which I looked up, it's exactly for prostitutes. And then so, lo and behold, there's a third will, 1902. It was never written, but what happened was in New Orleans, Tumbley was injured quite severely, so he had the priest, it was always a priest involved in this case, that uh, got the lawyer and they were going to do another will. This will actually, interestingly, interestingly, was bequeathing money to the Catholic Church in two different, couple different places, but also local charity in New Orleans. So here we find local charities in each city being helped out. And so, uh, but, but what happened was is the, the priest in New Orleans convinced Tumbley to just not do it because he's going to survive. So he didn't finish that one. 
So the other interesting thing was that uh, the 1903 will, the uh, $10,000 went to the the Archbishop in, ba in, Boston, in Baltimore. Well, the other one said Ireland, but it was not for Ireland. It was actually for Minnesota because the Archbishop's name was Ireland. And why the heck would he do Minnesota when he didn't live there? Well, lo and behold, the priest that was helping Tumbley out at the St. Louis Hospital was a guy named Jay Conway. Well, where did Jay, John Conway come from? Minnesota. So you can see that Tumbley was, you know, talking to the, the priest and probably asked, uh, who else should I bequeath money to? And then lo and behold, that's what happened. And so because they accepted the 1903 will, disregarding the 1901 will and never hearing about the 1902 will, was the remainder of his state then just divided amongst his yeah no what they heirs? did was right what they did was uh, Michael Fitzsimmons died he was the last of the uh, nephews that were pushing hard for this and so once after he died the rest of the cousins said let's just split it split it up evenly so the it was an agreement what they call it a uh, uh, a mutual agreement or something that there's a term that I use. Uh, that they use it, uh, but uh, so all the people involved with the two-thirds that were not bequeathed. So the, the one-third that was bequeathed went appropriately to Mark A. Blackburn in New York, everybody that was in there. But the other one was spread out equally to the rest of the, uh, the nephews and nieces as long as they could confirm that. So which was nice because what it helped me out was is I could now make a family genealogy that is much more accurate than before. So that's what I'll present later. So all these depositions and that have been discovered were kind of all made, all for naught, ultimately, in the end. Exactly. Except for benefiting ripperologists um, 115 years later. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Basically proving that gossip never gets old. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, uh, unless you have anything else to add, Mike. Oh, thank you, Allie. Thank you, Jonathan. All right. Take care. Hey, uh, one more question. Um, so you're, you're working on a new book. Do you have any idea of when we might be expecting that? Yes. Uh, the title of the book will be Jack the Ripper Suspect, Dr. Francis Tumbley, Straightforward, It'll be by Sunbury Press, and they expect to have it uh, published by September of this year. Wow, that's quick. Oh, the uh, the amount of uh, editing and researching is, uh, uh, divorce court is that close. So <laughs> that's how I know if I'm doing too much, she says divorce, my wife. Right. But if I, I back off a bit, then she doesn't say it. So I know right exactly where I can work and research. <laughs> okay, so it's a good thing we should assume if it's late, a little bit late. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. right. Yes, it's a good thing. I am not divorced. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again for coming on, Mike. And Thank you very con much. congratulations on all of these uh, discoveries. Oh, thanks. And that was Tumble Tea, The Hidden Truth. I would like to again thank Michael Hawley, Brian Young, and Allie Ryder for being on this episode, and I do hope our listeners enjoyed it. 
We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 conference talks, roundtable discussions, and author interviews about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to find us on the Casebook.org message boards or by Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. I would like to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.